Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When we think of fairies, we think of Tinkerbell. We think of wings and frilly skirts and pink, girly, ultra-feminine costumes. We think sweet, cute, unthreatening. But fairies have not always been thus. The fairy in the 16th century may have been increasingly enfolded in the pages of literature or confronted only on the stage, but they were supernatural and indeterminate beings. They acted as salutary tales of remaining forever a child or dwelling in dangerous liminality. They provoked and needled and would not be pinned down. And there seemed to be a relationship between the fluidity of their gender and their power. To explore this element of their appearance in Shakespeare and Spencer and in other literature, I'm joined today by Dr. Ezra Horbury. Dr. Horbury is a lecturer in Renaissance literature at the University of York, having previously gained a PhD at the University of Cambridge and being a postdoctoral research fellow at University College London. They work in the areas of early modern literature, theology, and queer theory. Today, we're discussing their article, Early Modern Transgender Fairies. Dr. Horbury, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. I am delighted to have a chance to talk to you about this wonderful work and to think together about new ways of understanding both the supernatural and gender in the early modern period. Thank you so much, Susanna, for having me. I'm very excited to get to talk to you about this today. So can we start with fairies? Can you give me a sense of who fairies had traditionally been understood to be and what they were becoming in the 16th century? I think one of the caveats here is to think about how we today understand or perceive a shift to have occurred here versus how it was experienced at the time. The big change that really happens at the end of the 16th century and into the 17th is the increased literariness of fairies. And the literariness is what survives to us today much more than the folklore. Medieval fairies are much more understood through folkloric beliefs. They are creatures that are viewed as strange, as frightening. They are associated with the landscape, with strange, dangerous places. They are frequently used to explain things that are otherwise inexplicable. Death, 
childbirth, irregularities with children in all kinds of respects, aging, female sexuality, all very much associated with fairies. Diane Perkis, of course, has done excellent work on this. Her book, Troublesome Things, is just one of the best reads if you want to learn about medieval fairies. So this understanding of them as being these very strange and threatening creatures, very amoral. And then in literature, in the early modern period, at the end of the 16th century particularly, fairies start to be invoked in different ways. And I think a lot of this has to do with the theatre. If you are going to write a play with fairies in it, you need to ask, how are those fairies going to be embodied? And today, or rather in the late Victorian Edwardian period, if you think the idea of Tinkerbell as a fairy, often depicted as a light over the stage, was back then that's not something that would have been a a very easy to pull off technique. So it's using the actors that you have. And if you want to use actors that can represent alterity and strangeness, it's going to be your child actors who are playing women, who are often playing these stranger figures. And so if you are Shakespeare, if you're writing Midsummer Night's Dream, you are drawing on your cast of child actors to embody fairies, and thus fairies start to be associated more with the kinds of things that children were good at and were associated with singing, with being pretty and small and sweet. And so that that's where this shift occurs. We lose that much more threatening sense of the medieval fairy, which is used to explain the inexplicable, which transforms into this much lighter, much more entertaining literary fairy that we most clearly know from Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream or from other texts of the period. And that then really becomes codified in the Victorian period with texts like Peter Pan and Allingham's poetry, and we get that concrete idea of the wee folk, the good folk, as Allingham writes about. That's such an interesting shift. And what we're going to be focusing on today is that in the literary works of this period, with this new idea of a fairy, one of the things that becomes evident is that the gender of fairies seems fluid. And I thought it might be helpful to talk a bit about terminology. They appear in ways that we today might call transgender. But I know there are going to be people listening who say, you can't search for trans people in the past, that's anachronistic. So can we talk about whether it is right to use the term trans or transgender about people who would not have identified that way at that time? And what you think is the best approach to reckoning with past sexualities and identities? Of course. I think first, these kinds of charges of anachronism are something that is almost inevitably leveled against terminology that relates to gender, sexuality, race. Obviously, terms like medieval and early modern are also anachronistic. People in the medieval period didn't go around saying, oh, it's a jolly medieval day we're having today, and yet that is a term we use. And similarly, early modern is an essentially arbitrary term we've used to define this particular time period. And there's a lot of good work on this. Bachowski and Kim have a really strong article on this topic. We have to acknowledge that a huge amount of vocabulary we use today to describe the past is not vocabulary that they used at the time, that 
doesn't mean that it's anachronistic. It's also worth saying that there are terms. Transfeminate is a term that was used in the 17th century, I think in a specifically more grammatical context, but it is interesting to see that some of this terminology goes back very far. The word transgender is used by a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. And there are certainly some ways in which people will use that word that won't necessarily be as applicable to applying to these fairies or other individuals, real people from this time. I like to use the word transgender as a broad theoretical term to encompass instability or change in gender. I think that is a straightforward way of using the term, and there isn't a great alternative to that. To answer your second question, what is the best approach here? I'm very firmly against there being a best approach. I think that having a multiplicity of perspectives and methodologies is extremely important. We live in a time in which there is a popular narrative that people who work on transgender studies subscribe to a homogenous ideology that brooks no room for disagreement and that it is a field that is opposed to any kind of dispute or disagreement or discord, which is absolutely false. There are huge debates all the time in transgender studies. So I know I use certain theoretical approaches that are completely different to other people. Two of the biggest ways of approaching transness in the past is the identitarian approach, which is looking for trans people in the past or looking for people who might have identified as transgender if they had that vocabulary. And the other is using transgender theory to just think about gender more broadly and how it's constructed. I am more in the latter camp. I don't do much of the first kind, but I think it's brilliant that work is out there. So I think we should oppose the idea that there is one best and true way to do things and encourage as many different perspectives and methodologies and disciplines as possible. And we'll see that gender appears in these literary texts to be considerably more fluid than we might have thought. And it seems a bit unfair to press you on something you've said is not your approach, but it is true that historians have found a few trans people in the archives. For those who aren't familiar with those findings, can you give a couple of examples? Yes, absolutely. I think one of the important things to bear in mind is that there are going to be two types of people that we will find. There'll be people who lived openly as however it is they identified or presented at the time. And then there'll be people whose identities we only know about because usually there was a legal intervention and legal records exist. Now, in the former category, most of those people we think about today as being potentially transgender is because of how they presented themselves in terms of their name and in terms of how they dressed. Antonia de Arauso is a really interesting figure who is commonly called the Lieutenant Nun, born in the late 16th century. And I will use male pronouns. It's a little complicated with all these figures to know what would be the best way to refer to them. But he ran away from a nunnery at a young age and 
immediately cut his hair and dressed in male clothing and lived as Antonio for pretty much his entire life. It's a very complicated figure. He travelled to the New World and was incredibly successful as a soldier there. And success as a soldier means did a lot of terrible violence against indigenous South Americans. And he revealed himself to really be a woman. I'm saying really in quotation marks there in a couple of specific instances where it was very necessary for his safety. And so it was widely known eventually towards the end of his life that he was born Catalina, but lived as Antonio. But that is a character that was a real person who lived and presented as male for much of his life. You have someone from a little earlier period, Eleanor Reichner, who was an embroideress and a sex worker and lived as female, dressed as female, and was arrested. But we don't know if she was charged for sodomy and prostitution. And then we have other people who cross-dress and often are living on the fringes of society. I said cross-dress there, which is maybe not the best term. It is ambiguous for some of these figures. Mary Frith is someone who did not change her name or live as male. So I'm going to use female pronouns for Frith, but I'm absolutely happy for people to disagree with me completely fine, who is someone who was a performer and a thief and lived an incredibly ebullient lifestyle, really, in London. And for a final example, I've recently been learning about scholar Jamie Jesperson is working on in 1650s in Mexico. There was about a dozen individuals who were executed on sodomy charges and they all lived with female names in a female community, despite being assigned male at birth. And these are all examples of people who lived in ways that we might today want to productively interpret as transgender. And I think this shows how useful it can be to go back to the past with the questions of the present. Obviously, we have to be concerned about not being anachronistic, but sometimes, actually, our perspectives mean that we ask questions of the past that people haven't asked, and therefore we find out new information about people in the past, as you've just shown us. In your article, I love a concept you quote from Carolyn Dinshaw, which is of collapsing time through effective contact between marginalised people now and then. Can you put this in layman's terms and explain what this means in practice? Yes, of course. So Dinshaw is responding to this split in how people approach often sexuality in history, the social constructionist approach and the essentialist approach. And with social constructionist approaches, you believe that how people understand their sexuality is a product of their current culture. And Michel Foucault is probably the biggest name in that area. Whereas essentialists believe that, let's say, gay people have always existed and they would always understood their sexuality in the same way. And there are arguments for and against both those approaches. Dinshaw wants to use her method of effective relations of transtemporal touches as a way of navigating that gap in the recognizing, following on from some of what historian Valerie Traub has worked on, that neither will we find the past completely identical to how we live today, nor will we find it a completely alien country. 
that Dinshaw says we can seek for these touches, these moments of identity and connection between now and the past, and to recognize that there will be differences and that there will be similarities. And in looking for those moments of similarity, for those moments of touch, we can start to see a history for marginalized people. I think that's really useful. And actually also very affecting because it shows an empathy and a concern about people in the past. And that's one of the things that motivates me. Hey, I'm Don Wildman. And on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo. We've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So let's turn to fairies. We're thinking about literary, about fictional representations of fairies. And the first character you consider is Ariel in Shakespeare's The Tempest. And we're thinking here about ideas of childhood. So first of all, we need to talk about childhood, it turns out. You rightly note that early modern childhood was at least initially genderless. Can you explain? So if we go right back to the beginning at childbirth, if you read midwifery pamphlets, manuals at the time, and writings about childhood by medical practitioners, the baby will be initially gendered, male or female, and then often just referred to as it, and then will be raised in a pretty 
feminine, all-female environment. We had the concept of breaching until still into the 20th century, the idea that boys would be raised in the same genderless clothes as girls. And being raised in a feminine sphere being raised by your mother, by your nurse, was seen as completely acceptable up until about the age of seven or so, at which point it, it became an imperative to paraphrase Erasmus to kind of chase the fairies out of these boys' brains and teach them appropriate masculinity. I love that idea. I had no idea it took so long. I didn't realise it was up until the 20th century. I knew this was something that happened in the 16th. Let's talk then about fairies as children who haven't grown up and remain genderless. What evidence do we have of this when it comes to Ariel? Ariel is a really fascinating figure and has been an alluring figure in Shakespeare for a very long time. In Shakespeare's time, Ariel would have been played by a boy actor, probably one of the most talented boy actors in the company, because it's a part that demands a lot of musical work, a lot of adapting to different characters. There were different ways in which Ariel embodies themselves. And in the Victorian period, Ariel was played by a woman, an actress. And it's funny how influential that casting has been. Some of my students just assume Ariel should be read as a female character because that legacy from the Victorian period has been so strong. Now, Ariel in the play, I don't like to get too caught up on assessing whether or not Ariel is male or female and kind of tallying up the use of pronouns. Ariel is once gendered as his but the term he, male pronouns were often used if something was a genderless being. Animals were often called he, his. Ariel is interesting because Ariel is a character that frequently embodies a female individual. Ariel presents as a nymph and as Ceres and as a harpy and has many costume changes. Depending on how you interpret when those costume changes occur, Ariel might be presenting as female more often than male in the play. So Ariel is this childlike figure who can change, shift all the time and has this very interesting relationship with Prospero. Prospero acts towards Ariel like Ariel's educator, like a schoolmaster, and they have this kind of catechistic exchange where Ariel has to be reminded of how they were rescued by Prospero from Sycorax. And that kind of educational dynamic with Prospero is trying to instill into Ariel civilized notions the same way that he tries to civilize Caliban, which is obviously a very racialized dynamic is very much reflective of the ways in which masculinity and therefore maleness really is instilled in individuals. So we have Ariel, this figure who shifts from male to female or in between. I flamed amazement, says Ariel. Can you really say fire is male or female? Ariel is this incredibly protean figure and is also a very childlike figure. And it is being embodied by a boy actor in this period that has such a specific protean understanding of childhood that facilitates that genderless and gender-shifting figure. So, in part, this association with genderlessness comes from childhood, but the association also seems to be here between, let's call it transness, this sense of being genderless, and being a fairy, i.e. the supernatural. Do we see that kind of link, that association, elsewhere in Shakespeare? 
to go to the other extreme, moving from the young, positive, genderless or gender transformative, transgender association with youth, we have the much more negative association with gender instability that comes in old age. And you can think about old age as a second childhood. We have this understanding at the time of the relationship between age and gender being that when you are born, you are essentially pretty genderless. And then you mature into womanhood, adulthood, malehood. And then in old age, there is a perception that your sex characteristics start to become incoherent. They start to collapse. And many negative, phobic, fearing old people, and what I would say proto-transphobic descriptions of older people at this time. The most obvious example is, of course, the witches in Macbeth, who you should be women, but your beards forbid me to interpret you as such. And then as a slightly lesser known figure is Falstaff cross-dressing as the witch of Brentford, who is just accepted as being an old woman with a beard in that scene. So you have this association between older figures, and it's not just older women, but older men too. Falstaff as well is a figure that is very commonly associated with the belly, with the womb. He says, my womb undoes me because he is a figure of advanced age, and that the effeminization of the older man and the masculinization of the older women are seen as these really negative and often presented as very repulsive facts. And this was understood in a very medical, very natural, philosophical way at the time. The idea that as you aged, you lost what Aristotle considers vital heat and your body grew cold and shriveled, that the breasts shriveled, that you lost your sexual potency. Though all of those shifts, those changes that happen in old age contribute to this understanding at the time of the older body as also being one that is a much more unpleasant, a much more chaotic collapse of sex difference. So we have examples there of seeing change in one's gender as being something undesirable. And you also cite literary evidence that suggests that a disconnection between biological sex and social gender could be perceived as deceptive or false. Let's look at Edmund Spencer. Do you think it would be fair to say that he is demonstrating transphobia? Personally, I prefer to say proto-transphobia. And again, people might disagree with that. They might prefer that transphobia be the exact term. Spencer's various invocations of the female body as repulsive and monstrous is a deeply misogynistic inclination. And if we can talk about the obvious example of Duessa here. Duessa is this enchantress in Spencer who represents variably the path of vice, a path of seduction. She represents the Catholic Church and she misleads our heroic knight Red Cross 
And to do that, she presents herself as being a young, beautiful woman. And then it is revealed that this is a deception. It's a glamour. And that actually her body is not that as she presents it. And Red Cross learns about this from another knight who was spying on her while she was bathing and is horrified to see what her body really looks like. And eventually when Duessa is exposed, we see she is stripped naked in public and we see her nether parts misshapen and monstrous, more foul and hideous than woman's shape. There is a great amount of detail about her breasts and how repulsive they are, that they are like bladders, lacking wind, that she has this deformed body, misshaped parts. It's a really unpleasant description that associates deception, associates Catholicism, and associates gender disorder and old age, all in this big nexus. And ultimately interlinks misogyny and anxiety about old age and the collapse of sex difference very tightly together. I think you're absolutely right to call it out as misogyny as well, because this is a literary character, but I'm immediately struck by the parallel with old women who were accused of witchcraft in this period, who are exactly being examined for the nature of their genitalia and judged on their relationship with the devil on that basis. And it's, you know, sort of pretty horrifying stuff. It's a very common trope in so many plays about witchcraft at this time that if the witch is an older woman, she will present herself as a younger woman to fool a man into bed. Sophonisba, the wonder of women, is a great and horrible example of this. Or you have women visiting men as they sleep and committing sexual assault that way, or these witches. And there is a recurrent trope of witches throwing age into disorder falsely presenting themselves as young, stealing men's essence to appear young, or forcing men to age rapidly, as in John Lilly's Endymion. And so there is this really tight association at this time in witchcraft plays between the fear of the aging body and the idea of women being deceptive. And all of these texts are written by men. The anxiety it's expressing is not really about women's anxiety about aging, it's about men and their own sexual desires, that they have this fear, they are threatened by the aging woman and her sexuality, or perhaps they fear that they have a sexual attraction to these women and they want to put that blame on those women, and it is a really strange mess of anxieties to try to untangle. And it is a very common trope at the time. Yes, and as you say, so many things intermix here, ageing and gender and hatred of women and hatred of uncertainty around gender, everything needs to be in its box. And I'm struck by the fact that this discourse is obviously deeply 16th century, 17th century. But anyone who's read a newspaper recently, or perhaps I should say a tabloid recently, will have come across some of these fixations in the media when dealing with questions of gender today. Yes. And I think it's really important to recognise that although certain groups will position trans people as being a brand new novel phenomenon of the last couple of years, the last 10 years, they might say. Trans people have been around for a very long time. People who live in ways that are incongruent with how they were assigned at birth might be perceived. And the ways in which people are discriminated against, the way in which people are phobically represented today, 
draws on many of the same techniques as negative ways of representing people a long time ago, not just the early modern period, but going back further, certainly the medieval period, and the way in which old women particularly are represented at this time is really similar to the way that people talk about transgender women today as being deceptive and violent and repulsive and not really women. It's the same kind of techniques. And Julia Serrano has written very well about strategies of trans misogyny today. And so many of those map on perfectly to the way in which these individuals are being presented in these texts. And it's not just older women. We can think about the way in which Jewish men are represented at this time. Jewish men, particularly in medieval texts, are accused of being secretly female, of secretly menstruating, this particularly anti-Semitic way in which Jewish men are presented as having a breakdown in sex difference is something we still see today in some of the more fringe conspiracy theories that link transgender people with Jewish conspiracies. These modern transphobic strategies are not brand new. They are the same kinds of techniques people have been using for hundreds and hundreds of years to delegitimize people and groups that they dislike or who provoke anxiety in them for whatever reason. Let's turn to look at another work which is probably less familiar to people than The Tempest and appears at first sight at least to give a kind of hopeful way of seeing these things. This is Thomas Randolph's Amintas, which was performed first in 1630. Can you tell the story, first of all, for those who don't know it, and introduce us to the character who must transition to become the Queen of Fairyland? Randolph's play is first one of several in this genre of the Arcadian romance. They are plays that are performed by troops of child players. All the actors are children, and they are often set in ancient Greek Arcadia. The gods are active participants in these worlds, and stranger things can happen in these plays than you might expect in a more realistic text. In Amintas, we have the stories of a pair of fools, Mopsus and Jocastus. And Jocastus, is one of his ill-behaved friends, decides to impersonate Oberon, the king of the fairies. And as Oberon pretends to have fallen in love with Jocastus and says, Jocastus, you will be the queen of fairyland, you will marry me. And Jocastus is initially very opposed to this and says he's not a woman and that he can't marry another man. That's obviously something that's frowned upon at the time, to say the least. And Oberon's solution to that is to turn Jocastus into a woman, which is the trope that commonly recurs in these plays. The reason transition is evoked is often to provide a solution to a potentially homosexual or sodomitical relationship. And Astus becomes very enthusiastic about this and says, I was thought I was born to be a queen and is delighted with the notion that she can become a woman and a queen and live with Oberon in the land of the fairies and decides, oh, I'll turn my servant into my waiting woman. I'll have him turned into a woman as well. And the whole thing, of course, is a bit of a cruel prank at poor Jocasta's expense. Eventually, it is revealed that, in fact, it's not really Oberon and it's all been a bit of a joke. 
It is interesting to think about the way in which this is not a joke that presents transition as something frightening or repulsive. It is presented as a very silly possibility. It's a joke about gullibility. But in other texts, like John Lilly's Galatea, which features two girls who must cross-dress as boys for reasons of self-protection and then run into each other in the forest and each believe the other to be a real man and each fall in love with the other and eventually understand that they are both women and as is common in texts at the time they express it's not possible for them to be in a relationship then if they're both women the goddess Venus appears and says there's an easy way to solve this we'll just turn one of you into a boy and unlike in Amintas where that is just a joke and no transformation really occurs in Lily's Galatea and in other texts like the Maze Metamorphosis the transformation does happen and it is this very light very unserious text, this genre in which supernatural things can happen. And it does present gender transition as a marvellous and magical, a fantastic, and literally in the sense both a fantasy possibility. And I think you can on the one hand say that the fact that these texts are plays performed by child players maybe delegitimizes that representation of gender transition. It is only because it's a cast of boy actors that this could be thought about. And I think there is validity to that argument. Though I think also, when we're thinking about texts, and this is one of the reasons I personally prefer a less identitarian approach to texts, it's important we don't lose track of their literary nature, their textual nature. Every text creates its own world, creates its own gendered world. What it means to be a woman in Macbeth, where you can be a bearded witch, or you can be Lady Macbeth saying, unsex me here. Being female in Macbeth means something very different to being female in Much Ado About Nothing. They are different worlds, they are different universes with different rules. And I don't think texts like this should be dismissed for being light in tone, for being plays with child players, for being quite magical and problem-free entertainment and how they deal with gender transition. They are simply advancing a particular way of thinking about gender and one that I think is really quite lovely still to think about today. So one last question then. Galatea sounds, in the end, affirmative towards gender change and indeed to same-sex love, potentially. But Amintas, you've suggested, draws this parallel between you know believing in fairies and believing one can transition. Do you think, in the end, then, it's actually reinforcing contemporary binary norms of gender and sexuality? I think it's very difficult to say one way or the other, and I... Th- think that, though I don't teach Minter specifically, I only teach Galatea, and I always encourage my students to have as much diversity of readings as possible. And I think you can situate this text very firmly in the culture and say one way or the other that it affirms popular beliefs or not. But these texts also participate in creating those beliefs. They're not just reflections of culture. They are active voices in that culture as well. And it's very easy to fall into a trap of self-fulfilling readings, which kind of goes right back to what we were saying at the start of this conversation about the nature of anachronism. Our understanding of history has been written. 
it is not an objective fact. History is a discipline that is written by historians and written very well for the most part. The historians do a great job, but it isn't an objective reality and it comes with certain biases. And sometimes if we see a discrepancy between what we understand as history and what we actually find in the texts, sometimes that is because our understanding of history as we have received it doesn't perfectly reflect the time. And it is, I think, important to, when we find these texts that engage with gender in transgender ways, be they playful and positive, or be they phobic and discriminatory, to engage with them on their own terms, to understand the kind of world, the kinds of presentations of gender that they are advancing, and try to figure out what we can do with that text, what it means to us. And there are many different ways in which we can use a text. We can use text to learn about history. We can use text to learn about its author, about the context of production. The possibilities are endless. And I think that pursuing that multiplicity and keeping our eyes open to the potentialities of texts is something that is really important when it comes to approaching literature from the past. In fact, what you're saying is, if I'm understanding you correctly, that we need to allow for that multiplicity of readings that inherent in the text is that there is that multiplicity of readings. And for me trying to shut it down and say, oh, it's this thing or it's that thing is not helpful. Just as we're trying to encourage a multiplicity of approaches towards gender, let's have a multiplicity of approaches towards the text. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so very much for this really insightful and interesting episode. I found your work absolutely fascinating and it opens up all sorts of avenues for further thought and further research. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Susanna. It's been a lovely conversation. Thank you for having me. And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built – a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess 
and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.